This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. People who are willing to contemplate their aging, vulnerability, and mortality often live better lives in old age and illness and experience better deaths than those who don't. They keep shaping lives of comfort, joy, and meaning, even as their bodies decline. They make peace with the coming of death and seize the time to forgive, to apologize, and to thank those they love. They rethink the meaning of hope. And they often die with less physical suffering and just as much attention to the sacred as our ancestors did. That was Katie Butler on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. Small behaviors can make a big difference in our health and well-being. Most of us work so many hours each week that we should think about how our work habits affect our bodies. Being able to stand sometimes while I work has made a huge difference for me. Uplift Desks has created high-quality office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. My Uplift Standing Desk allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me recharge to change positions when I get tired in the afternoon. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com 
slash P-O-T-C for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. Be sure to check out Praxis Continuing Education for their online trainings. Just go to the sponsors page of offtheclockpsych.com to link to Praxis and there you'll find a discount code you can use for registration on any live training events. So check it out. We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online neurodharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs. And you can find out more about them at our website, offtheclockpsych.com, where you'll get a $40 discount. One of the drawbacks to COVID-19 and being on quarantine is that we don't get to see each other in person as much. But one of the wonderful benefits is that we do get to expand our relationships online. And I'm really excited that a workshop that I usually just offer here in Santa Barbara, I'm going to be offering online so that it's accessible to a larger community. And I'm going to be leading a workshop on committed action, making values-based moves on Sunday, August 16th from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. And that's Pacific time through Yoga Soup. You can check it out at yogasoup.com. And we're going to be exploring how to take your values and turn them into committed actions, whether it's through social justice, uh, maybe you want to make a change in your health behaviors, or maybe you want to show up in your relationships in a more values-based way. We'll be doing some real hands-on experiential work together to put acceptance and commitment therapy into committed action in your life. So join me. I hope to meet some of you there and really looking forward to it. Check it out at yogasoup.com. As humans, we are programmed in with the fear of death, but opening ourselves up instead of avoiding thinking about death actually empowers us in ways that are really important and helpful. And particularly in this time of the pandemic where fears of mortality are really heightened, it can be quite useful to be thinking about death in more open ways. So I was really excited to have Katie Butler, who's a journalist who wrote two books about end-of-life experiences and many, many articles. And she joins me to talk about the art of dying well and what we can do in the face of these fears of mortality. Yeah. I found this episode to be incredibly useful in that I have to admit, I think that I'm one of those people who's guilty of the, like, oh, I'll think about this later. You know, like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. And of course, we all know that we're going to die someday and the people we love are going to die. But in each moment, it sort of feels like you can push it off until later. And I think that what Katie really, at least for me, like encouraged me to do is to think about like, if you yourself or someone you love, like if you want this experience of dying to be a meaningful one and to avoid regrets, then it's something that you have to think about now and have these really difficult conversations about what do you want this to look like? And, you know, one of the things that she talks about in the episode is not contributing to the suffering of the person who's dying. And oh man, that like hit me like a gut punch because I was thinking back to when my own mom died. And, you know, based on a lot of the things she talked about in the episode, it really made me want to, you know, jump in the Wayback Machine and do things a little bit differently. But I think the gift of it was thinking, you know, I still have my dad and I can reach out to him and have this conversation. And not end up having those, you know, same sorts of feelings of regret that I that I do have around my mom's death. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you think about your dad because I also think about myself with my own kids, my own mortal end and what kind of a legacy that I want to leave with them. And one thing that I'll say too, because I do think that thinking about death feels like something that we just want to put away. I mean, again, that's kind of what we're programmed to do is like survive and, you know, persist. But that there's this really powerful distinction between resigning ourselves to die and accepting. And I think her emphasis on acceptance turns out to be quite empowering, that we don't have to sort of give up on life, but recognizing that life is finite turns out to empower us to manage it more thoughtfully, with more intention, both through the living parts as well as through the dying parts, because just as much as birth and life is a part of life, so is death. And we can not control how it goes, but we can influence some of the ways that it can happen if we open ourselves up to thinking about it. Right. It's almost like acceptance is the opposite of resignation. I also like that she makes the point that even if you do all these things to create a more meaningful experience and to engage in dying well, as she puts it, it's still always going to be hard and always going to be painful. And I think, you know, that's where an element of acceptance comes into. Absolutely. I think that part is so important, especially now because people are dying in hospitals surrounded by medical personnel and PPE and disconnected from their loved ones. But there are certain things that we can't control. But there, again, we can sort of distinguish between acceptance and resignation. When we accept what is, it empowers us to work with what can be. And, and I think her emphasis on that is is re- realistic, right? It's sort of a acknowledges the struggle, the pain, the grief that goes along with death, and and certainly that can be much more present in certain kinds of death, but leaves open the possibility of influencing it in ways that are important for you, for each of us, for all of our loved ones. Yeah, absolutely. We hope you get a lot out of this interview with Katie Butler on the art of dying well. Katie Butler is a journalist, public speaker, and best-selling author of two books on death and dying, Knocking on Heaven's Door and The Art of Dying Well. She was a writer at the Psychotherapy Networker for a decade, and her other writing has appeared in places including The New Yorker, Scientific American, The Atlantic, and Best American Science Writing. Her 2010 piece in New York Times Magazine, titled What Broke My Father's Heart, went viral and formed the basis of her two books. She writes about slow medicine, bioethics, family caregiving, compassionate care, and end-of-life decisions, and was kind enough to join me to discuss some of these topics. Welcome, Katie. Thanks very much, Yale. I actually discovered your books after witnessing a long and painful journey of my own father's passing, and your writing was revelatory for me. I, I hadn't been able to put my finger on why so many elements of his last few years of life had pained me, infuriated me, and and terrified me. And it was really in reading your books and articles that I realized both what I could have done better for him, but also how I'd like to handle my own future in terms of people I love passing or my own mortal end. I really do think that your work has the opportunity to really change how people approach death and dying, which is going to be a part of life for all of us. Thank you. I The first book, which is Knocking on Heaven's Door, was very much the story 
of our journey through caregiving as a family. My dad had a major stroke when he was 79 and had up to then been really tip-top, quite healthy and active. And I watched my mother suffer greatly as a caregiver. And I watched my father suffer. And as he declined and developed dementia and a whole panoply of cluster, cascade of bad decline. And I also came to see, I think this is what you were speaking to, the importance of starting to name what is making this so difficult now. We, we live in a culture that likes to deny death in general. And then we also live in a culture that in some ways over-idealizes medicine and has sort of a taboo about saying anything negative about medicine. So in the media, you will read story after story of a cure is just around the corner, or now a vaccine is just around the corner. Yeah. So there's this technological utopianism that we're, we're going to be sort of saved from the struggles of ordinary life, yeah, which includes dying. And so... I think that whole struggle of my parents, it was complicated for us by the fact that my dad was given a pacemaker fairly late into this process. And we all believe that it overtly prolonged the most suffering filled period of his life. And so one of the things I was really trying to name is, which I understand in a much more sophisticated way now than I did at the beginning, is that we have a medical system that's focused on curing, but at this stage of life, people actually need all kinds of practical support, all kinds of caring. They need comfort care often. And instead we will deliver very expensive high-tech interventions to them and deprive them, neglect them of the kind of simple human caring and support that people are more likely to need. Yeah. And I think your book does such a great job of really putting those two issues side by side where we tend to really focus on one or the other, right? This issue of longevity of life versus quality of life. And sometimes there really is a choice between the two of them. But I actually, and I actually want to come back to that because I first want to address one of the first points that you made, which is that we live in this culture that really almost denies mortality in this very fundamental way. And, and that that can be really problematic. And I, I was recently reading to my older boys, the book, Natalie Babbitt's Tuck Everlasting, which really addresses this issue of immortality and sort of how we get really idolatrous about this idea of immortality. Um, and I just wanted to read a quote because it really just struck me as resonating with a lot of your work. And it's a conversation between Angus Tuck, the father who's gained immortality, and Winnie Foster, the main character in the book, who discovers the Tuck family's secret of immortality. And it goes as follows. Even she, Winnie, would go out of the world willy-nilly someday, just go out like the flame of a candle and no use protesting. It was a certainty. She would try very hard not to think of it, but sometimes, as now, it would be forced upon her. She raged against it, helpless and insulted, and blurted out at last, I don't want to die. No, said Tuck calmly, not now. Your time's not now. But dying's part of the wheel, right there next to being born. You can't pick out the pieces you like and leave the rest. Being part of the whole thing, that's the blessing. You can't have living without dying. It's this idea that immortality doesn't exist. And, 
and nor should we try to hang on to it existing because part of the meaning of life is that it is finite. We can make living better, even at the end of life, if we acknowledge that life is finite. I totally agree, and I love you using that word, idolatrous. And this is also something that the the ancient religions were very clear on. You know, Buddhism says, I am of the nature to grow old. There's nothing I can do to prevent growing old. Um, the Yom Kippur service has these lines that I just love, which are, man is like the grass that withers, the flower that fades, like a fleeting cloud. I can't remember all of it, but it is so beautiful. And all the images are natural images. So you sort of see our place in the universe. We are one more natural thing with a cycle of birth and growth and development and then finally death. I was thinking a lot about this before I came on because I was thinking about how important acceptance is in empowering us. Like right now, our culture is so terrified, understandably, of this new unexpected form, new to us, unexpected form of dying that is taking place widely. People are, it strikes me, people are almost frozen. They can't really act because they're waiting for Santa Claus. They're waiting for it to go away or they're waiting for a cure or a better administration. It really doesn't matter how you want to define it. But my sense is the more people accept the nature of what's going on, the more we are going to be able to dream up creative solutions that allow us some sense of community. Um, could I read a short passage from my book? Please. I want to read a short passage from the second book, because the first book was a description of falling in love with my family all over again as a caregiver, getting to really have a lot of redemption with my dad by being able to express my love to him very openly. But the second book is more the guide. It's called um, The Art of Dying Well. And it's much more intended to be an empowering guide for me or for you. Not when we're at the very ends of our lives, but when we're still in the stage when we can plan. So I'm just going to read a short passage here. In the years I've spent listening to hundreds of people's stories of good and difficult declines and deaths, I've learned one thing. People who are willing to contemplate their aging, vulnerability, and mortality often live better lives in old age and illness and experience better deaths than those who don't. They keep shaping lives of comfort, joy, and meaning, even as their bodies decline. They get clear-eyed about the trajectory of their illnesses so they can plan. They regard their doctors as their consultants, not their bosses. They seek out medical allies who help them thrive, even in the face of disappointment and adversity, and they prepare for a good death. They make peace with the coming of death and seize the time to forgive, to apologize, and to thank those they love. They rethink the meaning of hope. And they often die with less physical suffering and just as much attention to the sacred as our ancestors did. So... 
I love that. And you and I had emailed a little bit as we were preparing for this interview talking uh, about how your work really applies to the field of mental health. And I think that what you just read and what we've been, what you were talking about in terms of acceptance really fits into the kind of therapeutic approach that I and the other co-hosts of this podcast use, which is called acceptance and commitment therapy, right? The acceptance part is really central. And I mean, in my kind of how I take what you're saying is while we can't change the reality of death, the inevitability of it, what we can do is learn to relate to it in ways that are optimal for each of us. And according to acceptance and commitment therapy ideals, we can ask ourselves about values, what we want to stand for. We can reflect on how our values can be translated into committed action early on and and closer to the end of our lives. And I really think what's so cool about much of your writing is that it really gets to the heart of how we can identify our values and also what kinds of optimal committed actions we can take to make the end of life something that's meaningful, you know, maximally meaningful for each of us and for the, those that we love. Um, and so, you know, you talk a lot in your books about the differences in how you experienced and, and what you saw your parents experiencing, that your father's death was really um, disempowered because he hadn't been able to ask those questions and communicate. And your mother's was very different in terms of her ability to accept the end of life and make really clear, decisive decisions and involve you guys in them to some extent, but that it was really a lot of her choice. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the difference in terms Between of the acceptance. Two and, yeah. Yeah. And I do think acceptance and action, they're always in a dynamic balance with each other. It's never just one way or just the other. My Dad's decline and death made clear to me that the default option in modern medicine was not in attunement with the values of our family, because the default is to treat, treat, treat until someone says stop or no. And the even though regular human beings have a lot of values that they care about as they age and die, the assumption within medicine is very binary, which is people want to stay alive as long as possible, and that is their only goal. And so you actually have to be quite proactive in these days to create a pathway to the end of life that is attuned with your values. And you may fail, and then you have to be able to accept that too. There's a limit to how much control and influence you're going to have. But so my dad died over the course of seven years, really, Um, destroyed my mother's health in the process as a full-time caregiver. You talk a lot about your efforts to try to get the doctors to turn off his pacemaker and how you failed in those attempts and how painful that was for you and your mother. It was extremely painful because it was so painful to even get to the point of asking It was, I think, about six or nine months before his death when we actually asked to have it turned off because my mother just realized he was miserable. She was miserable. You have this quote in your book where he tells you, I've I've lived too long. Yeah. He he said three poignant things in those years. He had a lot of stroke damage, but he, he said, it would have been better for your mother if I died of the stroke. I'm not going to get better. And then he said, I'm living too long. And those were over the course of several years. Now, my mother, as you might imagine, my parents were, my parents are South African. And I don't know, there's something about 
American culture around this that seems different even from other Northern European type nations. Um, and they were very blunt about things like that. They had advanced directives. My mother, my mother had a mentor in South Africa when she was in college who actually chose to end his life in his 70s because he was developing dementia. So she always had this sort of fierce Zen warrior aspect to her. But I think when she, when she experienced what she said was the hardest thing in her life, which was caring for my dad for seven years, she, I don't think she wanted to put us through another one. And I don't think she wanted to put herself through. And so she looked very, she developed heart problems. There was a big push to get her to have open heart surgery, but it actually turned out she had two different heart pro problems that kind of went in the opposite direction. So if they had treated one, it would have actually made the other thing worse. But, um, and she had a heart attack about a month before her death and went on hospice almost immediately after that. Wasn't easy for her. She said to me at one point, it's hard to give up hope. And she was a very vital person. And then a month later, she basically had a collapse and she took off. Her, this is the thing I loved. She had these earrings she wore all the time, these silver earrings. And when she was in hospice, they took her to an inpatient hospice unit after this second crisis. And she said, I want to take off my earrings. And the nurse said, you don't have to take off your earrings. This is a hospice unit. You can wear whatever you want. And she said, no, I want to get rid of all the garbage. Mm -hmm. And I think that was her way of saying, naked I came into this world and naked I will return. So she was, she was a warrior. That didn't make her death easy, but it was definitely the death she chose for herself. Yeah. Well, and, and that's... Another part of what I love about your writing is that you talk about this question of what, what does it mean to die well? Like, what is a good death? And you don't make any bones that it's easy. It's not easy or pain-free, not for the person who's dying and not for the people who are around them witnessing it. But, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you understand what does it mean to die well? What, is it, what, is, what does that look like? You know, it's fascinating to me. The first time I was asked that, like, what's a good death? How, how hard it was me, for me to articulate anything, which again speaks to the culture that we're so unconversant in this landscape. I now see it as, some people really argue with the term a good death. They say nobody should talk about a good death. Deaths are not performances, spiritual or otherwise, right? So it's one thing to talk about the dying person and say they have no obligation to act in any particular way or say the right things or go gracefully. They don't. They could go angry. They could go frightened. But I think we do have an obligation to think about a well-supported death because dying takes a village. Dying is relational. Dying is emotional. Dying is spiritual. Dying is practical and medical. It's all those things at once. So for me, there is some, it's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, at the very bottom, you want pain control. You want to be clean. You want to be in a safe environment. You want to have privacy. And then you go up from there. I, I think a well-supported death involves 
the people around you not lying to you about what's going on, listening to you, letting you share. Um, there's some phrases in the hospice movement that I just love, which are thank you, I love you, please forgive me, I forgive you, and goodbye. And obviously those are things better not to start it you know, three days before you die, but within, you know, two or three months before you die to clean things up as part of your emotional legacy to others so that you don't leave other people behind with levels of regret or ambivalence or suffering. If you can, you know, you can't fix everything, but there's a lot of subtle, graceful, very brief conversations that are very, very meaningful and treasured by those you leave behind. So that's sort of my idea of a, of a good death. To me, that gets to this idea that you pose in your writing, which is, you know, to, to create some sanctity around death and whatever, in whatever way that that looks to you. I mean, I think often it doesn't look totally medicalized. And that's part of the problem is that we really dropped into this position of um, medicalizing everything around the human body. And that really leaches out a lot of the sanctity that happens towards the end of life. And so anything that you can do, even in, and you talk about this in, in um, The Art of Dying Well, but you, you can even inject some sanctity when you're in a hospital room, but it has to be with intention. And that, that's where the clarified values come in handy, because if you sort of say, it's important to me to have some rituals and some connection and you know, saying those kind of words like, thank you, I love you, I forgive you, can you forgive me, then then you can have it wherever you are, even if, you know, your loved one is on a ventilator, you can, you can engage some of that. Yes, you can. I want, don't want to pretend that it is easy or sometimes even sufficient. But I do talk about in the book, for example, I have a candle I don't think you can see it, but um, it's around the corner. But you, could, you can't bring an open flame into a hospital, but you can bring a LED candle. And they really do have a very sacred feeling, even though it's not the same as, as the real thing, but it's close. And to simply have some signal in the room that you care about the spiritual or sacred dimension of what's occurring, however you define it, I think is very helpful for people. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I was just going to um, share a personal story that 
Um, so my father, similar to your father, had a very severe stroke. His was caused by a metastasized tumor. And then he struggled with cancer for another two and a half years before he passed away. And he was in and out of the hospital a lot towards the end. And we, we did manage to get him home on hospice. And I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about hospice because I'd never yeah. experienced anything with it. it. Helped us as a family get through it in a way that I we wouldn't have been able to do without them. But what I was going to say is, he fell into a semi-coma the day after he came home on hospice and we had a chaplain come and we're not a very, we're Jewish, but not religious. And this chaplain performed this beautiful ceremony in the home with um, my father, my mother, and my two siblings. And my father was in a semi-coma at the time. And it was so touching. And at one point we laughed because my father, we joked that he was going to sit up and say, screw this religious ceremony, but there was something so beautiful and connecting. And we were able to say all the kinds of things, you know, express gratitude, express how he would live on through us. And it was one of the most meaningful things I've ever participated in. And I I was so grateful for it. Yeah, I did something similar with my father when he was on this hospice unit dying of pneumonia. We had decided not to treat the pneumonia, to let him go. And a Anglican volunteer chaplain came by and I sort of secretly with my mother, my mother would have, I don't know what she would have thought because they were both atheist agnostics. Um, and we did the Book of Common Prayer Anglican last rite. And even though the language of the company of the saints didn't really speak to me and I didn't think he was going to like a conventional heaven, There was something about speaking words that said, in essence, I turn you back over to the benign forces of the universe, you know, the great beyond that we all rise out of and return to. I was sort of almost surprised with myself that I, A, that I did it, and B, that it was such a positive experience for me. So are we going to talk a little about hospice? Do you, I would I have a couple of thoughts about it. Yeah, please. Sure. First, uh, before my father even went on hospice, a palliative care team came to the house, an outpatient palliative care team, which was really very similar to what a hospice team would have done. But it was like this team approach and it was practical advice like Take up the throw rug so he doesn't slip and fall. Get a baby monitor for his room so you don't have to get up all the time to see if he's okay. It, it, was like, it was like this global look at the situation where up until that moment, these fragmented medical system, individual doctors had looked at individual malfunctioning aspects of his body, and that was about as far as anyone had gone. It was such a relief. So palliative care and hospice, I think, are wonderful. I think there are drawbacks. I think people have extreme views about hospice on both ends. The most extreme negative view is they give people morphine and make them die. And people don't realize that people who are on morphine often develop high tolerances over time and that Morphine is very unlikely to hasten death, um, although in large enough quantities, it can. So there's that feeling that, oh, the hospice just wants to get rid of them. There's, I've heard that from very well-educated people. 
The other extreme is hospice is the cure for everything. And again, have to return to our highly fragmented medical system. They're only paid so much a day to come in. The result is that over the 20 years that hospice has existed, it's reimbursed by Medicare, it's reimbursed by private insurance. Over the time of its existence, it's pretty much eliminated hands-on bedside care over time. Like you have to either have a strong social network or enough money to hire part-time caregivers because their hospice, the nurse will come in, the chaplain will come in. It'll be very, very helpful. They are geniuses at pain control. They're probably the most informed of any medical professional, the most skilled. But if you are expecting someone's going to be there at the moment of death or that someone's going to help you diaper or change or any of those things, it doesn't happen. And I think that's a failing of the system and we ought to be organizing and the, the benefit for hospice, the reimbursement they get should be tripled so that they can actually pay for more bedside care. And then if you're poor and you don't have a good social system or you can't hire people to come in, or you live in a neighborhood that's so dangerous that you can't keep morphine in the house. The whole ideal of dying at home, which I, I understand people's, they want to be full people as they die. And they also want to have autonomy in the space that they're dying. They and their family want to be free. You don't want to have to ask permission for everything. It's so understandable, but I think it's also out of reach for some people. And that this is the acceptance part. We also have to acknowledge that and not beat ourselves up if we can't make it happen. Yeah, I think that you said in a, in a podcast interview that I was listening to that, you know, death always involves some regret. I did too much. I did too little. I wish I had said this. I wish I hadn't said that. And yeah. that's inevitable. And, and I do think self-compassion is quite useful in that place. And that a good death is not does not mean pain-free and does not mean without regret. It means, you know, whatever it means for you, but, but we can't aim for perfection because there's no such thing. Yeah. And I love the term, uh, a meaningful death. I think it's possible to have a very meaningful death. And a lot of that has to do with thinking about your emotional legacy. You know, none of us, like 70% of people don't sign advanced directives, even though they're told constantly that they should. But the reality is that's an incredible gift to those who survive you because at least you're going to take that type of regret off the table if you've yeah. been very explicit about what you want and don't want and they yeah. don't have well, to feel. Can you actually pause and, and define what an advanced directive is? Because oh, I was sure. that before my father passed away, I had no idea what it was. And when oh, wow. EMTs came to our house, when I called them after my father on a hospice went, had a seizure and went into a semi-coma, they asked for the PLOST and I had no idea idea what they were talking about. So here's, you know, the EMTs in my house. My father's just had this crazy wild seizure. We're all freaking out and we have to go find documents. It was chaos and, and traumatic. So I think it's a really nice opportunity to just inform people like what, what is sure. an directive? What, what is it useful for? What is it not useful for? Because it, it's not like everything, nothing is a cure-all. Yes. Yeah, don't call 911 <laughs> in that situation. You really have to have an alternative plan to calling yeah. 911 if you want to die at home. Yeah. Um, advanced directives came to be because there were some extremely troubling cases of people being kept alive 
for years and years with no brain function and but maybe some level of suffering that we couldn't even gauge people being kept alive on feeding tubes on ventilators um, and these were very upsetting to the general public the first thing that got invented was called the living will which is now morphed into the advanced directive and its original purpose was to try to reclaim and restore autonomy to the average joe and jane so that they would not find themselves in that position of having been resuscitated, usually by an EMT, after massive brain damage had taken place. So these documents are to affirm our right to choose and reject medical treatments. And we have a constitutional right to choose or, re or reject anything. And we can have our own reasons. It doesn't have to be medically approved. Okay, so an advanced directive usually does two things. One, it picks somebody to make your medical decisions when you can no longer speak for yourself. And that's very important because we have this advanced technology of medical care. You may very well spend some days or longer being unable to speak for yourself. So it picks somebody. And then it also talks about treatments that you want and don't want. So if you're within, you know, some of them, there's a lot of boilerplate. And so I really advise people to talk openly, informally, go to a coffee shop. Oh, no, I can't go to a coffee shop now. But, you know, sit down <laughs> around a table if you can. Outdoors, six feet away from each other with a couple of, tea, couple of cups of tea. With masks on. <laughs> yes, exactly. And really talk about things like what makes my life worth living. Yeah. If I couldn't be restored to that level of functioning, what are the treatments that I would want and what are the treatments I would refuse? Yeah. So that's what an advanced directive is. It's unfortunate they've become so legalistic in their language, their checkboxes. It's, mm -hmm. it's very good for the medical people, but it's not that great for the average person because I think they're intimidating. They make your eyes swim and... They're very important, though. So there is one called Five Wishes, which you can find online for $5. You can get a copy. But what I love about Five Wishes, it includes things like, I would like to be massaged with oil when I'm dying. This is the music I'd like at my funeral. These are, um, you know, I would like to be read the poetry of Mary Oliver. I would like to be read from the Bible. Whatever, whatever makes you feel reassured and connected to something larger than yourself and I think if you could approach it in that spirit of giving to the next generation and also the spirit of helping you die in a way that is meaningful for you and supportive and comfortable or reassuring, whatever it is that you need, these documents can be very, very helpful. So do you want more detail or that's enough, huh? Um, I, I would listen to you talk about this forever, but I, I just wanted yeah. to sort of add that for, for me, I mean, I think watching somebody that you love die is a really terrifying experience and you feel really out of control. And I'll disclose, um, that after my father died, I, I just felt a lot of obsession around mortality and fear of death and what was happening to him. And I think what 
was so helpful to me in your books was realizing that I don't have control over dying, but I have control over how I approach it. And I think some of those things like, you know, being clear with myself and my loved ones about what I would want, which I think is actually pretty different than what my father would have wanted. And, but part of what was so difficult about watching him die is that we hadn't had those conversations. And so I didn't really know, but what helps me to feel more, I don't want to say confident, but just more comfortable with thinking about my own mortality is knowing that I can, even now, you know, I'm 40 years old, so I hopefully have more time, um, start having those conversations about what feels really important. And it really reduces my terror. And I think right now we're living with so much terror around mortality because of this pandemic. And it can really give you something to hold on to, right? This question of what's important to me, how do I want to manage living and how would I want to manage dying if it did come to that? And and I think that can be really soothing in this scary time. Yeah, a friend of mine likes to say, Worrying doesn't do us any good, but planning relieves worry. (laughs) I just, I love that. And to think about this time that we're in, um, this might segue really nicely into a question that you asked me in email ahead of time, which is that we're seeing this epidemic of what I consider the very types of deaths that I wrote two books to help prevent, which are deaths in intensive care with somebody with a tube down their throat, unable to communicate with family, and now absolutely deprived of all family, a lot of hospitals the minute you go into the hospital. And And, and any social connection at all, because all of the medical personnel are wearing all this garb and it just feels so dehumanizing, I imagine. And I think it is creating an epidemic of moral distress and PTSD among healthcare workers. I think it would be traumatic for them in any case. You might see eight or nine deaths in a single shift if you're in a hotspot. But to combine that with this feeling that you are depriving people of something so ancient, I mean, the idea of a death vigil goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It is in our bones. It's in our DNA. And I think this whole concept of moral injury or moral distress, when healthcare people feel that they are having to enforce rules that on some gut level seem really wrong, is is making it a lot worse. And again, you know, this is the activist in me. I understand that hospitals undergoing surges may have to create draconian guidelines. But I do think six months in now, we know enough about PPE. We know enough about how it's spread. This is inhuman to be running nursing homes and to be running hospitals and disallowing all visitors whatsoever. I know some hospitals are changing, but I I really, we, I think it's important to, in a safe way, change this. Um, I I wrote a piece that I couldn't sell to anybody, and I have no idea why, about a pop-up hospice that was created in New Orleans. This wonderful organization called the Heart of Hospice, which is a for-profit hospice chain in the South, 
those women who were scattered across the South got together and within two weeks, they set up a inpatient hospice unit on a disused floor of one of the New Orleans hospitals. And they allow two visitors a day for as long as they want to stay. They can even stay the night. You know, uh, it's family members. They're all gowned, they're masked, they're PPE'd. Um, and if a small hospice chain in the South can do it, tell me why major, major medical centers with huge billion-dollar budgets can't figure this out. Yeah. Oh, I, I would love to read That's that. That's my rant. I hope, it, I hope it gets published. So so oh. I can totally get behind some of the recommendations that you're advocating. Yeah. But given where we are and given you know, sort of our discussion of acceptance. I am kind of curious, what what do you recommend? I mean, in terms of how can we seek to help loved ones or even ourselves die? Well, you know, die a meaningful death when death can mean at this point, not being with family, being intubated, being quarantined in a hospital, being surrounded by medical professionals and PPE. What what can we do in the face of this tragic set of circumstances? Uh, Again, I think contemplating ahead of time. I mean, I'm in my 70s. I'm 71. That means I could die in a month if I got this thing, even though I'm very healthy otherwise. It's it's a possibility in a way that it hasn't been a possibility, really, um, at least not on my radar screen. I have several pieces of advice. The first is do think about what lengths do you want to go to to try to live? For someone in my age group who's also obese or has heart problems, asthma, lung problems, like 88% of people like that are dying in intensive care after they've been intubated. So you might decide those odds are not good enough for you, and you might sign an advance directive that says, I don't mind going to the hospital, but... And I don't mind supplementary oxygen and drugs or whatever. But if it gets to the point where the only way to, quote, save my life is to intubate me, that's the point where I would like to switch to comfort care and have lots of meds and hopefully a family member holding my hand. And if not, you're going to have to hold the hand of whoever reaches their hand out. And quite a few nurses and doctors and chaplains and orderlies are doing that. They're sort of stepping into the spiritual vacuum and doing the best they can. So that's one thing, is making that threshold decision of how much medical care are you willing to sign on for, despite the risks that you might end up having a death that is less ideal than the one you hoped for. The other thing I suggest, I think a lot of this is about the survivors. Oh, if you are going to the hospital, regard the moment when you say goodbye to your loved one at the hospital door, regard that as your final goodbye. Make sure you get said everything at that point that you're going to regret not saying, whether it's thank you, I love you. It, that's the moment because there's no guarantee what you'll be able to communicate again. It could go south very rapidly. The other thing I would say is let's take care of the survivors. There's something in our guts that tells us we ought to be there to support the people we love. It's very, very visceral. I have a couple suggestions, and one, and they're all about using ritual in virtual ways. 
I was introduced to the Yardside candle some years ago when I was mourning my mother's death. And I just love it. So the Yardside is a Jewish ritual on the anniversary, usually the anniversary of a death. So I would make a little altar on a tabletop, basically candles, flowers, photographs of my parents when they were beautiful, you know, in, in good health. And then you light this candle and it burns for almost exactly 24 hours. And there's something so wonderful about really valuing and remembering them and also having the light go out and having the sense of, okay, life is evanescent, this candle's evanescent, the light's out. My thought is if you need to do a death vigil and you can't be there physically, use something like a yard site candle and hold a virtual vigil in your own house. So put up photographs, put up flowers, light a candle, remember that person and be with that person in imagination the same way that you would like to be there with them physically and can't be. There's also a really beautiful ceremony in my book, which is a bathing and honoring practice. It sounds similar to what the chaplain did with you, but it's, I, I'd love to read it if you think you have time, please, but please, not yes. if uh, you, there's other things. Okay, no, no, so... And I've noticed that when I was giving bookstore readings, I would read this ceremony as the close of my talk. And a lot of people would close their eyes in the audience. And then they would come up to me afterwards and they said, I did the ceremony in my imagination for someone that I loved who died and it didn't go the way I would have hoped. And so I feel psychologically often the things we do in our imagination, they register on a deep level for us as real. Yes. And that we're going to have to use things like this until, until we develop some other workarounds, whatever they're going to be. I don't know. And like you said about acceptance, which is you've also got to be just grateful for what you do get, you know, grateful for that chaplain who takes extra time or conveys how you feel or, that nurse who holds a telephone up to the person's ear, whatever it is, there are so many of these acts of kindness taking place in hospitals under great duress. Okay, so now I will read the bathing and honoring practice, which was created by three oncology nurses in Santa Barbara. And there was a change in their hospital protocol so that instead of treating bodies with dignity, by a local funeral home, they were getting kind of zipped into body bags and trundled out the back elevator. And they, it was very disturbing to these nurses because they knew these patients really well because oncology people tend to come in and out, you know, for a while. So this is what they did. Um, after washing and dressing the dead in clothes from home or a clean gown, the nurses encouraged relatives and friends to anoint the body with lavender oil. The physicality seems to be very helpful, said Beth Combs, who's one of these nurses. I have a theory that after witnessing a death, we go into shock and our minds become numb and chaotic. When we start bathing and touching our loved ones, our bodies understand what our minds cannot. And here is their ceremony. As the hair is anointed with oil, a nurse or a family member recites, we honor Jane's hair that the wind has played with. 
Next, a dab of oil is gently rubbed on the brow, as someone says. We honor Jane's brow, the birthplace of her thoughts. In each succeeding sentence, the name of the dead person is inserted at the appropriate place. We honor your eyes that have looked on us with love and viewed the beauty of the earth. We honor your nostrils, the gateway of breath. We honor your ears that listened for our voices. We honor your lips that have spoken truth. We honor your shoulders that have borne burdens and strength. We honor your heart that has loved us. We honor your arms that have embraced us. We honor your hands that have held our hands and done so many things in this life. We honor your legs that carried you into new places of challenge. We honor your feet that walked your own path through life. We give thanks to the gifts that you have given us in our lifetime. We give thanks for the memories that we created together. We have been honored to be part of your life. That's beautiful. Yeah, I just love it. And, um, and you can even recite it for yourself and touch the various parts of your own body as you go through it. Because as you know, we're, a lot of us are very starved. We're, we're skin hungry. We're very starved for touch. And even touching ourselves can feel healing and reassuring and comforting. Right, right. Yeah, self-touch. And so there's something physiologically powerful that happens when we engage that, even when we can't do it with somebody we love. Yeah. Well, I, I, love, I love what you just read. And I think that's, um, you know, just one powerful example of some of the suggestions, the really practical suggestions that you offer in your writing in terms of how to handle the, the death process in ways that are meaningful. And again, I just want to sort of come back to this idea that, you know, there are things that we don't have control over. We don't have control over death. We don't have control over this pandemic and the circumstances that it's bestowed upon our entire world. But there are some things that we do have control over and we can use the opportunity of being confronted with death and dying to help ourselves clarify our values and identify committed actions around dying, you know, asking ourselves the kinds of questions that you suggest in, in your book, making death more sacred, um, and, you know, asking ourselves that more, most general question of like, you know, what, what would make death and dying most meaningful for me? And, and, and then what can I do to sort of embody that? And Katie, you end knocking on heaven's door with some ideas of what you wish you'd known. You wrote that natural death is not the default pathway and that if what you, if what you want is a natural death, that you need to be very deliberate in carving it out. That's the slow medicine path to death is one oh, of acceptance, yeah. but it's not pain-free. Um, and sort of the difference between slow death versus the more common medicalized death and that you can't control whether a loved one will die, but you can influence the manner of their dying. Yeah. And then accept. Well, and to address that question of, of meaning, like when you asked that question, I thought, well, I think the most important thing to me is that I don't leave my loved ones in worse shape than they have to be in. 
you know, that mm-hmm. I don't contribute in some way to their suffering. Um, so I think that's probably one of my overarching goals. Yeah. And I did want to talk about, I have a Facebook group called Slow Medicine, which everybody is welcome to join. It's about 6,000 people now, and it is a lot of family caregivers or people who have been family caregivers, often with aging parents, but also a very wide spectrum of people in medicine hospice nurses, social workers, oncologists. So people get a lot of support as they are going through this bewildering process of trying to make decisions about what do I say yes to? What do I say no to? You know, is this a harbinger of the end or is this just a blip? All of this kind of question that we don't, we don't see it enough. We don't talk about it enough. We don't live in multi-generational families enough that we could have seen this with uncles and aunts and whoever. Anyway, so the whole idea of slow medicine is that we now live with a very fragmented medical system that honors and pays for big ticket interventions and not the careful, time-consuming work of establishing a real human relationship, a healing human relationship with your cardiologist or your personal doctor. And this is really in contrast with fast medicine. And fast medicine is fabulous if you were just in a major car crash or you just had a heart attack and you rushed to the wonderful time to call 911, rush to the ER, get you know, intubated, all of those things could really reverse your problem. But slow medicine is very much for all the things we can manage, but we cannot fix. And there's a movement, it's an international movement among doctors who are saying the same thing. We need more time with patients. We need time to think, especially when people have chronic illnesses, doing more is not necessarily doing better. I wonder if you can actually give the specific example that you um, give in your book of the remuneration for a cardiologist who does an intervention, I think specifically the one who put in the pacemaker for your father's condition versus a conversation with a family physician. They're just compensated so differently, and, and it really does create a system that incentivizes fast medicine instead of the careful, thoughtful kind of approach that we might take when there's a lot of problems that can't be fixed, but rather need to be managed over time. Yeah. Well, uh, my dad's primary care doctor would have been paid something like, I can't remember if it was 46 or $64 to have a long involved discussion with my both parents, one of whom was stroke damaged about whether or not a pacemaker was a good idea. But the surgeon who put it in got seven or 800, the people who made the Pacemaker got something like 12000 for what's actually like a pretty simple electronic metronome that hasn't really changed that much in 20 or 30 years, you know. Um, shouldn't be more expensive than an iPhone. Really, it's less complicated than an iPhone. So there's this tremendous disparity. And I, I'll give you another one that is in the second book, which is, unfortunately, oncologists make their money from essentially a commission or markup on the price of chemotherapy that they deliver. So 
it's just terrible. They get almost no pay for having a discussion with you about whether the third or fourth round of chemo is even a good idea, which the fourth round is not. And the third is, you know, maybe, maybe not. That's why they make all their money. Yeah. And so my father's oncologist was, it's just the system is so messy, but after he passed away, it fell to me to call the oncology um, office to let them know that he wouldn't be coming in. And the response was, oh, that's too bad. He had really wanted to try another round of chemo. And it was, I, I just, you know, it was one painful experience in a very painful time in my life. But I just remember being like floored that that was the response because he had been so sick for so long. Mm -hmm. And I actually think he did want to keep trying to fight, which, you know, I'm not sure that I would have made the same choice, but it, it did, it just, it pained me to hear that kind of a response. And, and I think that the system is just set up in this way that, you know, more treatment, begets more treatment until it's, you know, past the point of possible to even offer anything. Yeah. And more treatment equals hope or more more treatment equals caring, you know, doing everything is somehow the same as caring for somebody. I think, yeah, I think it's, it's really problematic and it's like, it's expecting people you know, I'm, I'm not saying that I think oncologists are like just money driven and that's why they do what they do. But it's like you're asking people to go against their own self-interest in order to do the right thing. And if you look at that on a systems level, that just like never works. Um, I think one of the hopes of both books is that it's to restore people's confidence in their own best judgment. And the best way of knowing that your dad was being helped or not by chemo was on how he was actually functioning, how he felt. I have a, yeah. And people lose touch with that. And the oncologist will say, well, let's wait for the next scan. Let's keep doing this till we see the scan. But the scan might show shrinking tumors. But the bizarre thing is the shrinking tumors have absolutely no relationship to whether that treatment is quote, working on the ground in the sense, does the person feel better? Is a person going to get more months or weeks or days of life? It actually has no relationship. And yet the FDA approves these drugs and considers them effective if they shrink tumors. You Mm. see what I'm saying? The real, I mean, a friend of mine right now, you know, woman who married me the first time. um, Sorry, that's very confusing. She was the officiant at my wedding. Um, (laughs) She had dementia. She also had stage four cancer. She was being given immunotherapy. She was getting every side effect in the book and her tumors were still hurting her. And yet the oncologist wanted to keep going until the next scan. Mm -hmm. And I had a big email exchange with her daughter um, where I was blunt, but hopefully not too directive. Um, And I really just had to give her and her brother some support about so that they could actually act on their own gut feeling about it. So one of the things I just want to leave people with is, you know, trust your gut, check in with your gut. You know more than you think you know, and it may be intuitive and you may not be able to use medical language to describe it all. But I, I started with my gut and then I did 
I did, what, seven years worth of medical research? And it sort of came back to, wow, a lot of those gut instincts, they were right on. So yeah. that's my big thing. Believe in yourself and in your love. Yeah. And you know the people you love better than anybody else's. And you're the only one who is an expert on your values and what makes sense for you and how much suffering you're willing to undergo in return for the gamble of more time on earth. But at the same time, I mean, the book talks about this. It's really has a whole section on coaching how you speak to a doctor because you do need to draw out an honest answer. And there are forms of hope that are different from you're going to live forever or you're going to beat this. That is not the only kind of hope. You know, there's a hope of leading your, leaving your daughter in good shape. There's the hope of maybe doing a watercolor or dying under the stars. There are other hopes besides that one hope. And I think it just is, it's only fair to us to know when that hope is an unrealistic hope, dishonest hope. Yeah. Well, I love the message to trust in ourselves and not to overly um, idolize medical experts because they have expertise, but their expertise, as you're saying, is not in in us and our values or in what is going to necessarily make the most sense for our loved one. And I'll just also read a quote that I love from your book. I like to read people their own writing, (laughs) Um, which is, that the time may come when the most loving thing is to actively advocate for doing less. And I think in our culture that that is a really hard thing to do because we equate love with doing and doing more. But like in so many spheres of life, and I talk about this a lot on the podcast in, in terms of parenting, but I think in terms of mortality, that that is true too, that it, it, and it is important to check in with yourself about when that time is to sort of let go and and find peace. Yes. Yes. And very much so um, in the art of dying well, in a hospital death, maybe you want to bring in candles. Maybe you want to smuggle in the dog. Maybe you want to get the person moved to a room with natural light. But there also comes the moment when you need to just surrender because the point is not any external perfection or external circumstance, it's a peaceful death. And that might require not arguing with anybody, just accepting everything as it is and being as able as you can to really just be there with an open heart and be there. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. We'll link to your books and other writing because this is certainly a topic that many of us really need to sit with before we can find sufficient clarity. And thank you so much for your help um, to me personally in taking this important part of life's journey. Right. Thank you, Yale. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.